we're seeing the same actors play in this space that have been playing in this space. Information operations activity related to wartime actions is not new for Ukraine. It's been going on for several years. So what we're seeing really, the main differentiator, I think, is the scale and the tempo at which this is happening, plus probably a proliferation, a slight proliferation of the actors uh, involved in this. I would say that we've, we've probably seen two distinct phases broken down in toward the lead up and then since. And in the lead up, it was a bit more of proactive messaging in a way. So setting the pretext potentially for invasion. And once you have an announcement of invasion, that flips a bit. And we switch from this proactive phase to a more reactive type of narrative. Narratives that appear intended to shape events on their ground and influence perceptions of Russian activities. Welcome back to another episode of Manian's Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. In February of this year, Russian forces invaded Ukraine. In both the run-up to open hostilities and since then, we have witnessed cyber espionage campaigns by various Russian threat actors, deployment of multiple families of wiper malware in cyber attacks. We've seen the targeting of critical infrastructure, DDoS attacks, and more. But there's another front where we've been watching cyber threat activity unfold the information operations space. And here this week to dive into that with me, I have Sam Riddell and Alden Wallstrom, two analysts on our IO team. Sam, Alden, great to have you here today. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Luke. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having us. So we've done a couple episodes in the past around some of the IO research that we do, looking at the disinformation landscape. But I think this is a very still maybe under-discussed component of some of the work that we do here at Mandiant. And so I think maybe we can start with just an introduction on both of yourselves and also the really interesting work that you're doing on the analysis teams. Um, my name is Alden Wallstrom. I'm a member of the, the IO team here at Mandian. My background is as a Russia analyst. So I help to support some of our coverage of Russia and Central and Eastern Europe generally, and of late, a lot of focus on Ukraine. Yeah, my name is Sam Riddell, and I am also a threat intelligence analyst on the information operations team. And at Mandiant, my focus has primarily been on Russian nexus information operations, uh, as well as IO activity originating from and targeting Latin America. And then to quickly dive into you know, what our team does. So I think it's useful to zoom out for a second here because actors that want to engage in online influence have a wide variety of tools at their disposal. So this can include everything from state media on one end of the spectrum to you know everything in between, such as potentially amplifying content from real ideologically aligned individuals to covert information operations on the other side of the spectrum. So at Mandian, our IO team primarily focuses on those covert information operations that I mentioned. Uh, and so our scope is really these politically motivated efforts to manipulate target information environments using deceptive tactics or coordinated and inauthentic online assets. We give particular weight to activity that is of either of high consequence or is potentially state-sponsored. And we also take advantage of Mandian's visibility into traditional cyber threat activity, uh, including you know, the experts that are on scattered across the teams at Mandiant in order to be able to detect and report on a lot of these cyber-enabled information operations, which we're seeing more and more of today. So I wanted to just briefly lay that out since 
one of the defining characteristics of what we've seen so far is that Russia has certainly used lots of these overt tactics, including state media, statements from government officials parroting kind of the official government line. But our focus today will really be on uh, the scope of our IO team, which are those covert information operations. I think it's also worth noting you guys cover down on, on the hacktivism space too, which makes a lot of sense when you think about how we've seen certainly Russia unfold their IO capabilities over the last several years, trying to use personas of that space. And even though the heydays of Anonymous and LulzSec are, are gone, we still see legitimate hacktivist activity or authentic hacktivist activity all over the globe. And so I guess differentiating when are we seeing an influencer information operation and when are we seeing actual hacktivist activity in different regions is important. Certainly, and it can also have an information operations nexus. Uh, for instance, we've seen a lot of pro-Russian, quote, hacktivist groups that have sprung up since the beginning of the conflict that, for instance, have done things like hack and leak of Ukrainian government documents. Obviously, that has an influence component as well. So that's a great point, Luke. Let's jump right into to what we've seen in Ukraine. There's a lot of different aspects in terms of the different operations that we've seen. And we'll get into not just activity that we've seen from Russia, but maybe at a high level, let's just at least initially narrow it down to Russian messaging, Russian activity, some of the groups I know we're going to touch on. What have we seen maybe in both the run up to the military conflict, but also now that we have open hostilities in Ukraine? What are we seeing in terms of the high level messaging that's going on with some of these IO networks and, and sets of activity? So I would say that we've we've probably seen two distinct phases broken down in toward the, the lead up and then since. And in the lead up, it was a bit more of proactive messaging in a way. So setting the pretext potentially for invasion. And a lot of us were looking, at least to a certain extent, for potentially a major event that would occur, be it a false flag operation, a really serious push of disinformation around one of those events and reflecting think what we've seen is that that didn't actually happen. And potentially what we were seeing at the time was a more disparate push of various narratives supporting the Russian position. So, for example, many different claims alleging Ukrainian violence against Russian speakers in Ukraine. And once you have an announcement of invasion, that flips a bit, right? And we switch from this proactive phase to a more reactive type of narrative, narratives that appear intended to shape events on the ground and influence perceptions of Russian activities. So for example, you'll have news stories come out, one say, alleging Russian war crimes being uncovered. You have reactive narratives trying to either dispute those claims or, or, or counterclaim accusing the Ukrainians of that same activity. And then one additional point to add to what Alden already said is that, you know, a lot of what we're seeing is that we're seeing the same actors play in this space that have been playing in this space. Information operations activity related to wartime actions is not new for Ukraine. It's been going on for several years. So what we're seeing really, the main differentiator, I think, is the scale and the tempo at which this is happening, plus probably a proliferation, a slight proliferation of the actors uh, involved in this. So if we think about the different audiences here, you have certainly the, the populace in Ukraine, Ukrainian citizens, you have populace in Russia. I don't know if we're going to get into some of the, the domestic messaging that we've seen in, in networks there. Um, but then also there's the messaging and the audience of Europe, NATO, some of the immediately countries along, on the, along the border, like Poland, the Baltics, um, the United States, like we have that sort of audience as well. 
when looking at the different themes that we've seen with messaging, what have they looked like? And have we seen any deviation or has it been kind of similar things that we've seen in the past where there's been attempts to drive wedges amongst those different communities, amongst those different alliances? What's that look like? So at, at least for, for messaging targeting the West ostensibly or NATO, I would say that there definitely has been some consistency with what we've seen in the past. Uh, a good example here is activity associated with the Ghostwriter campaign, which for those who follow our work will know that we have attributed at least partially to Belarus. Um, but we've also noted previously that there are aspects of the campaign that could serve both Russian and Belarusian interests. And this is a really good example of that. Classically, we've seen efforts to drive a wedge between NATO partners and specifically undercut NATO's presence in the Baltic states. Something interesting we've seen here, for example, is work done by suspected inauthentic personas that we attribute to the campaign. Um, and these personas publish English language op-eds, often advancing that anti-NATO effort. But over the course of 2022, we've seen an increasing mention of Ukraine in those narratives. And specifically, some of them also appear to have a potential secondary effect of not only undercutting NATO's position in the region, but also potentially to undercut local domestic support in the Baltic states for their government's support of Ukraine. So, for example, one was one op-ed promoted a narrative that was saying that if the Baltic countries send weapons to Ukraine, it'll provoke Russia and then it risks putting the Baltic states at war. So sort of that threat of instability spreading is something that we've seen promoted. Yeah, and then I'll just add in here, I don't know, Alvin, if you want to touch on the Russian angle first before I jump into the Ukrainian targeting. Yeah, for sure. We, we, we've definitely seen a, a decent amount of activity targeting uh, Russian domestic audiences, um, which is interesting in and of itself because it does suggest a need to manage public opinion at home, um, which you'd expect, but we, we have seen it. Um, so, for example, uh, we identified a coordinated and inauthentic network of social media accounts uh, heavily pushing narratives related to the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and the narratives span the gambit, right? You have disputing claims of Russian atrocities that have surfaced in the Western media. You have counterclaims against Ukrainians saying things like they've used chemical weapons already. And then refutations of the effects of sanctions saying everyone's good at home you know everyone's fine with this you can find all of the products in the store for the same price um and we know that this is specifically targeting russian audiences because interspersed in this activity you also see commentary on particular sort of nuanced domestic uh russian political ideals that really have no relevance to anyone else other than russian citizens yeah and then in addition to those operations, we are seeing activity that does appear to specifically target Ukrainian audiences. Um, and I think that these themes that we're seeing in these operations really resemble kind of a more traditional psychological operation or PSYOP approach that was typical of wartime. So the main objectives of these appear to just create like fear, uncertainty and doubt, damage morale of civilians and military. And then thirdly, to create tension between Ukraine and its allies like some of the other operations that are targeting the West. So two examples, I think, that demonstrate this really well. One brief one is that in early March, we saw a threat actor compromise several Ukrainian government websites and use that access to publish some messages, some of which were urging Ukrainians to surrender. Others falsely claimed that Zelensky had signed a peace treaty. So these really politically motivated defacements. A second really uh, good example that's indicative of 
the strategy writ large, I think, is an operation we observed during some of the heaviest fighting for Kyiv that came from a campaign we've been tracking for quite some time known as Secondary Infection. This is a pro-Russian influence campaign that has been reported on by us and by others that has been going on since at least 2016. And this operation used burner personas to post articles to multiple different forums and websites. And they were promoting the false narrative that President Zelensky had actually committed suicide in his military bunker in Kyiv via a self-inflicted gunshot wound after essentially losing hope over Ukrainian forces' military outlooks. So I think the takeaways here for that operation is that it was obviously designed to damage morale and spread uncertainty. But you know, also there appears to be a bit of an allusion to Nazism there, which is an ongoing theme we've seen uh, in pro-Russian disinformation, the claims that Ukrainians are um, Nazis or have Nazi tendencies. And then one fascinating tidbit that would be easy to overlook is that that operation claimed that just before President Zelensky decided to end his own life, he had received this mysterious phone call from U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. So apparently tipping the hat to some sort of nefarious hand from the United States there. So I think these operations are really indicative of the strategy of targeting the Ukrainian audiences as a whole. So you've already alluded to it. Both the actors that we're seeing here, again, uh, unsurprising to organizations or individuals that may be tracking the space, but secondary infection, ghostwriter, you know, household names when you're thinking of Russian disinformation. You've also mentioned uh, or alluded to a little bit some of the platforms or areas where these themes or these messages are being pushed. But take a step a little bit further back and describe for us when we're talking about disinformation. I mean, I think a lot of people think of, you know, troll accounts on social media networks, but really like the activity we're talking here is much broader than just that. So when we think about some of the things that we're seeing from secondary infection, some of the things that we're seeing from Ghostwriter, uh, or even some of the other uh, sets of activity we maybe haven't linked yet to a known group, where do those take place? What's the sort of mediums those take place? And, and how does that activity typically unfold? So one key area uh, that is is really important, specifically in this context, but also just generally on the Russian internet is Telegram. Um, you see a lot of activity taking place on Telegram, various actors leveraging it in different ways. Something something interesting that we've seen brought up in in the course under the course of this conflict, though though it was occurring before, is a set of Telegram accounts that the Ukrainian government has attributed to the Russian Russian military intelligence GRU, um, and specifically uh, the 85th Main Special Services Division. So the same segment of the GRU that the U.S. and U.K. have attributed APT-28 activity to. And, and it's an interesting example of, of how this can play out differently on different platforms because these are dedicated accounts that have been operating for years, either focused on national or regional Ukrainian issues, presenting themselves as information resources. And the ones that have remained active through, through the conflict have completely switched into to publishing information about the war. We cannot independently confirm this GRU attribution. What we can say is that we've observed evidence of it being a network of accounts that work together to cross-promote information that it serves Russian political and military interests. And they do it in a somewhat more nuanced manner. So um, in some respects, you might expect you know, pro-Russian propaganda to be very supportive of Russia. But in this case, you have instances where it's not messaging that's like, oh, God, like Russia has come to save everyone. Thank you. And it's a bit more along the lines of, have you noticed how unprepared the Ukrainian government was for this? 
and oh, I heard that there was some corruption and, and Zelensky allowed oligarchs to pay him to leave the country. So it can take a much more nuanced form, but it also is established resources taking place on platforms that at least from a Western perspective, we've considered less, but have been prominent in, in the Russian media space for a long time. And these are messaging in Ukrainian and English, Russian, where we, what languages are, are these accounts using? This messaging is in Russian. It does, especially with the locally focused accounts, it, it does appear to be targeting uh, Ukrainian citizens. Something interesting is that some of the especially more salacious claims get cross-promoted up into the sort of general sphere of pro-Russia accounts that may be targeting Russian audiences as well. And so, Luke, I think you make an interesting point about kind of targeting and the different vectors you can use. And linguistics certainly plays a role in that. So to give an example, if you wanted to reach me and convince me of something, you'd probably your best strategy would be to get somehow get a message in front of me on social media. Whereas if you wanted to target my parents or grandparents, perhaps you'd try to, you know, hack their local news station and put a story across the news ticker on the bottom. And so even within the same operations, sometimes we see slightly different TTPs or vectors used to reach slightly different audiences. And I'll give you one really good example of that. So in mid-March, we saw an operation that used slightly different vectors, one of which was actually an AI-generated video, or a deepfake, as they're colloquially known, uh, that all promoted the message that President Zelensky was urging Ukrainians to lay down their arms and surrender. So first, it was run on live TV and a live broadcast as a news on a news ticker of a Ukrainian news channel. It was also published to the news agency's website. And then finally, in this deepfake video to the website that had custom generated video and audio. Uh, and so we assessed that this video was deepfake based on a variety of different indicators. But I think it's significant because I believe this is really the first somewhat serious attempt to use a deepfake in an information operation. Past instances we've seen have been really low effort or have used things such as face swap or cheap editing techniques. But this one, did use, you know, the AI generation people are referring to when they talk about deep fakes and warn about them. It had clear political intent and there was an intent to deceive. So the threat that people have been warning about when it comes to deep fakes for years has finally come. Thankfully, this time it fell short, I think mostly due to President Zelensky's rapid counter messaging and the Ukrainian government has been really effective in doing that. And I think we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment here. But uh, something like this certainly could be seen again in the conflict during the future. Yeah, I thought that was one of the interesting things that you guys have noted in your reporting over the last couple of months, that particular anecdote. I think especially where to date, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of where we'd seen AI manipulation of, of images, deepfakes, et cetera, has been mostly limited to still photography, right? The, the GAN images that we've seen used for fictitious or fabricated profiles. So this seems to be, again, what people have been expecting for a while but really seen it like operationally play out in, in maybe a more concerted way than we have to date. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We've basically been seeing it for backstopping and persona building. So using static images to uh, populate the profile photos of fake accounts. And I would argue that the main reason for that is just the technology simply hasn't caught up. So those GAN images have been become quite realistic and believable, whereas, quote, deep fakes, so these AI-generated videos really aren't there yet. Even this video with Zelensky, it's pretty obvious to anyone who takes a quick look that it's not real. So, you know, this is just a prediction, but I think as that technology improves, the threat will become more real and we'll begin to see it more. 
I think another thing to, to keep in mind too, you know, for folks that would look at some of this and say, well, it seems very clumsy or aspects of it are still somewhat clumsy. Um, you have, I think, the added aspect to all of this beyond the, the similar campaigns that you guys have been tracking and observing for years that we've seen secondary infection or ghostwriter engaged in. You're having this all happen now in a chaotic environment where you have an actual war going on in a country and there's disruption to information. There's there's fabrication of information. You noted, for example, the fabricated content and information that was put on defaced Ukrainian government websites, right? And so you're just in a very chaotic information environment. It doesn't necessarily need to be incredibly sophisticated to potentially have an impact. And, you know, especially if we're dealing with a conflict, potentially lead to, to further chaos and problems. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And it's like, so these narratives in particular may seem just completely absurd or ridiculous to us sitting here in the U.S. or to Western audiences. But one consideration as well is that we're not the target audience of a lot of these operations. So they're not designed to persuade us. In a lot of cases, these narratives are really designed to provide a convenient alternative to the uncomfortable realities out there. So if you are a Russian citizen and you're seeing accusations that your your beloved country is perhaps the aggressor in a war that is causing lots of human suffering, if given a more palatable out than the truth, many people will take it. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, we talked about sort of the media component to this uh, with the, the deep fake video, but where we've seen activity that has involved kind of where I think our sweet spot is and a huge differentiator with what we do at, at Mandiant when it comes to disinformation analysis, which is pairing our visibility into intrusion operations where we see maybe an espionage actor compromise a media website or Twitter account, et cetera, and then use that leverage to post fabricated content with an effort to get it you know, picked up by other media outlets. What have we seen in that space and what does that look like maybe historically and has there been any changes with what we've seen to date in Ukraine now? So in in the the lead up to to the invasion, um, we we did see some limited evidence of ghostwriter interest um, in Ukraine. Uh, this was happening in tw- late twenty twenty one. A couple narratives promoted that appeared intended to promote tensions between Poland and Ukraine. There was what seems like on our end a bit of a lull. Um, that doesn't mean that. It hasn't happened. It means that it's what we've been able to see. And as you noted, you know, there's a lot of noise right now in the environment in terms of disinformation narratives and just various defacements, cyber intrusions, etc., that are catching the news. But that has changed recently. Um, there was recently a ghostwriter operation that I will kick to Sam on that one because he worked pretty closely on it. But we've seen some renewed investment there on the, on the Ukrainian side. Sure. So this one was honestly pretty insidious in terms of the narrative it pushed, but quite interesting from an operational perspective. So in late April, we saw a ghostwriter operation that involved the compromise of, we believe, at least three individuals and their social media accounts. Um, Well, two social media accounts and one website belonging to one of the individuals. And so the actors behind this used those accesses to basically simultaneously push out messages that there was a human organ harvesting ring operating in Poland Um, kind of with the consent or involvement of the EU and the Polish government uh, that was specifically targeting Ukrainian refugees seeking refuge in Poland. And so what they did in this instance is they posted this fake content to the compromised accounts and to the website, and then they built upon that access with an additional layer 
of obfuscation, which is something that Ghostwriter does quite well by, and they did that in this instance by using another separate persona on social media to then inject commentary citing these posts into target groups that they believed would be predisposed to believe that operation. So um, I think that's a really good example of what you're talking about there, Luke. Yeah, the the narrative, I mean, we see obviously from some of these groups a, a continued focus on messaging that would seek to drive a wedge between various European countries amongst NATO alliance members, et cetera. But Poland in particular seems to come up quite a bit in terms of some of the initial, I think, defacements that we saw on Ukrainian government websites were pretending to be some Polish organization or collective. Uh, and then obviously this narrative that we've seen that, you know, likely with the example you mentioned could in part be to try to dissuade Ukrainians from fleeing to, to Poland or create further antipathy between different groups. So it is interesting to see that particular uh, region, that particular country come up time and time again in a lot of the messaging we're seeing around Ukraine. Specifically regarding, you know, why why Poland comes up a lot. Um, one, they are an active presence in the region, but two, Russian and pro-Russian information operations specifically are, are very good or adept at leveraging history. And there's a complicated history throughout that space, including between Poland and Ukraine, that they try to bring up when possible, it seems. There's even reporting on, like we have on a secondary infection campaign that promoted the idea that, um, or operation, excuse me, that promoted the idea that um, Poland was going to send troops into Ukraine to seize back some of its historical territories. We've seen that promoted elsewhere as well from non-concerted ops, but these sort of, the reason that Poland comes up to sometimes is just that the pro-Russian information operations really tend to leverage that historical aspect. And I think at least it's in this recent ghostwriter activity, one of the things you, you noted in one of the reports I was reading is there were fewer accounts than we've historically seen used at times. So maybe like a smaller group of accounts that were being used to kind of push that narrative. I mean, in terms of the success, if you're going to like measure the success of those sorts of operations where they're trying to get uptick by larger and more widespread media, are we seeing media engage with that and sort of republish or continue to, to propagate that across social media or other forums? So I think a different way to measure impact uh, is reach and seeing how far these uh, narratives travel in the information ecosystem. And so a lot of them don't appear to get a lot of reach right off the bat. But another way of thinking about it is from the cognitive psychology perspective. And so, so unfortunately, cognitive psychology has shown that the initial information that is shown to a viewer is far more likely to stick with the viewer than the information which is debunked at a later point. So basically the debunk is never as effective as the information, uh, the initial information. And what that means is that even if this does get caught and exposed by people like us, there still will be some lasting effect in the psyche of the people it's reaching. And that's what makes it, to, to borrow a word you were using, Sam, earlier, I'm going to steal this, insidious, uh, is with those sorts of operations, right? Because once they get the, that sort of uptick and people are continuing to propagate that, even if, you know, let's say it's a media organization that was compromised as part of that, they were to come back and said, we were hacked, this document, this image, this, you know, whatever it is that was posted on this was fabricated, we didn't do this, that message is already out there and, and can continue to spread. Let's shift gears really quick to, I think, what is another under-discussed aspect of this activity. So 
again, folks that are familiar with Russia's IO capability, their intent, how they play this game, unsurprising that you would see this come to bear in this sort of conflict. One of the things I, I think is really interesting in some of the research you guys have been doing, though, is we're not just seeing them play in the space around this conflict. So maybe what we'll start with is Dragonbridge. Who or what is Dragonbridge and what have they been doing around this? So Dragonbridge is a, is a campaign that we've tracked for, for multiple years, and it is a pro-PRC campaign um, that's comprised by hundreds of inauthentic accounts on social media and different websites and forums that promote pro-PRC narratives on various topics and in multiple languages. So, uh, for example, we've seen narratives promoted related to COVID-19. Um, we've seen them dabble in U.S. domestic politics. Um, and with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've seen a little bit of a pivot or just a refocus um, in English and Chinese language content promoting pro-Russia narratives. So the campaign is parrot, parroting a bit um, releases by the, the Russian government, including, for example, claims by the Russian Ministry of Defense that there's evidence that the U.S. is running biolabs in Ukraine that are conducting biological weapons research. Um, now, like that claim specifically came from the Russian Ministry of Defense. They follow up and promote it. But they sort of range in, in, in what they've been saying, even things like U.S. is sort of inflaming the conflict further, seeing the benefit of arms sales to Ukraine in the future. And looking at this, um, it seems as though it could be a bit of political opportunism, perhaps. Um, the operators behind the campaign leveraging this instance or this event as a means to just further their continued interest in targeting U.S. and Western global standing. And maybe this is a good place to, to also talk about sort of the way that you do attribution around some of these networks of accounts. So, because it's a little bit different, um, unless we're talking about, you know, something like uh, Ghost Rider and, and 1151, some of the ways that you do attribution around the messaging and narrative that's that's being pushed by sets of accounts involves looking back historically, what sort of narratives have we seen, you know, for suspected sets of activity, have we seen those accounts push? So can you talk a little bit, of, I mean, you, you started mentioning a little bit about what we've seen in the past in terms of, of specific narratives, but maybe you can talk about um, how and to the degree of confidence we can get into with some different networks or sets of, of coordinated inauthentic behavior. What does that typically look like when you're trying to assess, okay, I've seen a message being pushed in a particular region and then trying to trace it to what could be one of many different threat groups or nation state sponsors? So attribution in IO is notoriously difficult and case specific. We're not, we don't have the luxury of a lot of the behind the scenes indicators that you would have in traditional cyber threat intelligence. You know, we're not a platform. We don't actually can't see the IPs behind its accounts. It'd be great if we could, but we can't. So when we do attribution, we base it on things like um, similarity in TTPs to known campaigns, and specifically when those TTPs are very specific, that's even better. Narratives, Alden mentioned in the past, when we see something that is a very specific narrative, you can extrapolate from that and think about who would, what actor would have an interest in pushing this specific narrative. We do look at things like infrastructure ties. So infrastructure in the traditional sense, if we can link things like domains promoted, that's of course gold. Um, otherwise, if we, for instance, see a campaign consistently over and over use the same websites for dissemination, and then we view a new operation 
that is uh, you know pushing a narrative. And again, we're seeing it on these same websites and even in these specific sub forums, that could be another indicator. Linguistics is one more thing we look at. So specific linguistic errors, such as if someone's writing in English uh, and they're not including articles, such as the, you know, that might be indicative of someone who's a native Russian speaker, for instance, and Alden could speak to that better than I could. But um, just to give one example there. So that's just a sample of the th things we look at. Um, and it really does vary case by case. And when we're thinking about other different potential uh, players in this space, in that the IO landscape that we're seeing kind of materialize around Ukraine, we've got Russia, we have China, but we have others. Uh, and can we talk a little bit about maybe who some of those other suspected you know, networks are pushing? Sure. So we're seeing activity from various campaigns that we suspect to be affiliated with Iranian nexus actors, such as the network surrounding the inauthentic Liberty Front Press outlet, in addition to a campaign that we have recently dubbed Roaming Mayfly, which we believe is linked to the Endless Mayfly campaign that has been publicly reported by others. And so um, these Iranian operations are basically using the Russian invasion of Ukraine as narrative fodder. So they are conducting, again, opportunistic operations that are largely in line with what they've been doing in the past. The objectives are consistent in that they are anti-US, anti-Saudi, anti-Israeli, but they're just kind of opportunistically seizing upon recent events in Ukraine to push these. So one instance, one example of that could be a narrative that the West uh, for years has ignored suffering or indeed caused it in Arab countries. But now that we are dealing with, frankly, a white European country in Ukraine, suddenly the West cares. And the implication there is hypocrisy and racism from the West. We're also seeing activity from actors you might be surprised about, such as a network that we have tracked for a while now that is linked to the Cuban government. And this network does mainly remain focused on domestic propaganda, for lack of a better word, but it is parroting some of the pro-Russian talking points and promoting pro-Russian content to a limited extent. And so I think that when we consider the threats of disinformation related to Ukraine, you have to think about all target audiences. So there's been recent reporting showing that Spanish language disinformation on Ukraine is actually spreading much faster than English language disinformation. And Russia in particular has done a really good job with their state media apparatus of establishing uh, Spanish language versions of their state media uh, accounts to, to aid with that as well. So two examples of actors there that are also engaged in this. So is this something that you think is, you know, portends for the future, what we should expect with uh, future, you know, large scale conflicts that have multiple interested parties? I mean, or is this similar to maybe what we see on with cybercrime or espionage campaigns where like COVID or the Olympics, there's just certain things that are great lure usage, right, for spear phishing, And everyone's going to utilize that because of just inherent global interest in that topic. Is there something kind of similar there with these themes or you just have these networks of accounts that, again, you see them push disinformation around a particular topic and then shift to the next hot topic and they're just looking for any sort of large global event that they can exploit for their purposes? I think something that, you know, we've, we've seen across, you know, pro-Russia um, and the pro-PRC and pro-Iran stuff at least is is that consistency with pursuing campaign motives for the for those that we've we've previously been tracking 
and with that, what I would say is that it probably does then portend that you will have some of this as a dynamic for larger scale conflicts in the future. At, at base, if you're not a party to the conflict, it can potentially provide an avenue for just continuing to pursue the established goals or motives of, of the campaign. And so I think that should definitely be expected to a certain extent. Yeah, and I think also that in some ways, IO is a mirror to geopolitics. So while some of, sometimes we're basically just seeing opportunistic picking up of narratives similar to lures, as you mentioned, uh, Luke, I think in other times, if you see a nation state support another nation state's talking points in the information space, that could be a bellwether, perhaps, for larger geopolitical cooperation. So we're, we're several months into this conflict now, uh, as I mentioned, and as we've talked about, we've seen a wide range of activity in other areas of cybersecurity and some of the campaigns we've noted. You know, but we've seen multiple groups now be involved in and carry out IO operations in Ukraine, around Ukraine, and around messaging of this. What are some of the takeaways that you guys have uh, in terms of looking at this activity, how it's changing, how it's evolving, the apparent success or otherwise of some of these operations? What do you guys think about where this is going? One thing that's been on uh, on my mind sort of thinking about this and, and looking forward is maybe a bit further in the distance. Uh, I know that we all hope that this conflict sort of concludes as soon as possible with a strong Ukraine standing. But I think that the story for IO around it is going to be much more extended, um, even after hot war slows down. And my reasoning for this thinking is uh, experiences that we've seen in the past related to what's been going on in Ukraine. For example, after MH17 was shot down, there was a push of Russian disinformation to cover up what was going on there. But when you have an incident like that, it entails a very long investigation to help establish what exactly happened and hopefully bring to justice those responsible. And we have continued to see pushes of Russian disinformation to cover up or to deflect from reporting on that as the process continued. And what we're looking at now, there's already reports and investigations involving what has been going on, potential atrocities committed by Russian soldiers. And I would expect that at a minimum, we would see pro-Russian disinformation trying to shape those narratives as the investigations on, on those incidents continue into the future. Yeah, I mean, I think Alden really hit the main takeaways that I would have hit. I just think that one thing that is sort of fascinating that we've seen in this conflict is that some of these operations pretend seem to have like a second order goal to them. And what I mean by that is, for instance, some of these hacktivist actors that, you know, have declared that they were just patriotically motivated to be stood up and to support Russia in their war against Ukraine. One impact of their activity is the activity itself. So things like DDoSs and the kind of influence effects that might occur from that. But then an additional thing to think about is how media itself covers this. So almost every article I've seen now frames this subject as basically an equal and authentic war between patriotic hackers. So that in itself is fascinating to look at how the activity itself can shape conversation around the actors in this. And so another example could be Cyberfront Z, which I don't know if we're going to talk about that, Luke, further. Sure, let's get into it. I'm going to let actually Alden speak to that a bit if you want to, Alden. Yeah. Cyberfront Z is super interesting. It is a, a sort of dual aspect activity set, one over an observable, which is it's a telegram channel coordinating the efforts of so-called 
patriotic volunteers to promote pro-Russian content across the internet. Um, and then there's a reported covert side, uh, which we can't confirm, um, that is said to be a troll farm run out of St. Petersburg. And so on that overt side, on the, the Telegram channel coordinating patriotic volunteers, you have CyberFrenzy, this Telegram channel that issues targets for the so-called volunteers to then go post pro-Russia messaging. Um, and that can be targets within Russia or Ukraine, say, comment on President Zelensky's Instagram account and ask him when he's going to stop being a Nazi junta running Kiev. And it extends well, well beyond that, though. We've seen targeting issued all the way from Daft Punk to Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? So this is this is an activity set that has targeted both Russians domestically, Ukrainians, and into the West. But they've, they've made a bit of a fanfare about this. They, uh, they've done some interviews publicly, the, the, the leader of it, and they also do some public events that they've recently been promoting. But originally, at the outset of this channel, what we saw on it was some advertisements recruiting for, recruiting for paid positions. And that brings us to that covert side. So a Russian undercover reporter allegedly uh, reports to have um, followed the job announcement, worked a day in the job, and found that it was actually a troll factory doing much of the same work that the channel coordinates, but under false personas. And interestingly, that newspaper has linked the individuals identified as running this activity as having links to entities sanctioned as IRA. So famously, the Internet Research Agency running a troll farm that caught the world's attention as being involved in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. So... CyberFrenzy has accordingly also gained some some note in the press as well. And so CyberFrenzy there, to my larger point, there's clearly an effort to make it seem as if though there is a legitimate mass patriotic movement that has organically come up to support Russia and its objectives. And sort of the same parallel, I would say, with uh, the pro-Russian hacktivists that we're seeing. So really just the definition of astroturfing is what we're seeing right there. So taking all this together and now, you know, for someone who's looking at this and saying, okay, what does this mean for the future of IO activity, of disinformation? We're seeing, you know, varying levels of sophistication and coordination with some of these campaigns. And then, of course, varying levels of success, however you're going to, to measure that. In terms of how this activity is evolving, though, and the, and the fact that so much of it is, is public and in the open, I mean, I think you guys know this. It also means that many other threat actors can learn from and trial out some of these things. Where do you think this is going in terms of what we should expect to see beyond Ukraine? So I'll start. I mean, I think the bad news is that there are more actors in the I.O. space than ever. People are finding out that this is a relatively low cost tool that they can use to achieve political to further geopolitical objectives. And there's really no costs if you get caught. So I would expect to see more and more actors using I.O. towards different ends, whether those are politically motivated, financially motivated, um, you know, corporate sabotage. This will probably um, expand more and more. The good news is that I think there's more defenders looking at this than ever. And this is probably the most true platitude ever is just that this is really a whole of society effort. So, you know, to adapt the old phrase in this instance, you know, where you sit is where you defend. Everyone has a different slice of the pie in the I.O. space. So we at Mandiant, you know, we outlined our own subset that we cover. Platforms, they have a different subset they cover. There's other organizations that are tackling this issue from the media literacy front. Um, 
basically, I think all this work that everyone is doing to approach this topic from different perspectives is going to be vital in really combating the IO threat. And I would just double down on that, that learned experience aspect that Sam emphasized there. Um, we, we've seen some good examples with specifically campaigns that we track, but also just generally of, of different target countries or, or populaces coming up quickly and becoming either sharper in their reporting when operations come up or just generally countering disinformation threats pretty well. Ukraine is a great example. They've been a target for years and they've shown themselves thus far to be adept in encountering major messages, uh, disinformation narratives that have, have come out in the conflict. So would look forward hoping that beyond Ukraine for countries that have less experience are also willing to, you know, work together and or learn from each other in that respect, because um, it, it is something that with, with experience can be more manageable to a certain degree. Well, a lot of really great insights, you guys. So thanks for sharing them today. Uh, I think this is a very useful addition to the larger discussion of, of what we're seeing across the threat landscape in terms of threats hitting Ukraine and, and kind of around that conflict. So I'm sure you guys will continue staying busy with all that stuff to track. But thanks, uh, Alden, Sam. Great to have you here today. Thank, Thank you very much, Luke.